KZSU, Stanford University's FM radio station, broadcasting across the Bay Area on 90.1 FM and across the world at kzsu.org. From the campus of Stanford University, this is the Modern Architect radio show and podcast, featuring one-on-one interviews with renowned and cutting-edge architects, influencers, and sustainability leaders. The show and podcast will inform educate and illuminate the transformation, joy, and inspiration architecture brings to our cities, communities, and lives. Hosted by architecture aficionado and principal of Accurate Architectural, Tom Dioro. Thank you, Shay. For our guest today, please welcome Jonathan Sweet, a Martindale Hubble Directory AV-rated attorney. That's the highest rating. Jonathan has written two books on construction law. Suite on Construction Industry Contracts, Major AIA Documents, and Avoiding or Minimizing Construction Litigation. Jonathan regularly represents a medium-sized businesses in contract review and drafting civil litigation regarding business disputes and other legal issues throughout California. Hello, Jonathan. We're excited and honored for you to be on our show today. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Please, uh, Jonathan, tell us a bit about how you became interested in uh, in construction law and what the heck prompted or inspired you to write two books on it as well. Okay, well, that's pretty easy. Um, my father was a law professor at the University of California at Berkeley, and in the early 1960s, he was asked to uh, conduct a study on construction documents uh, for the National Science Foundation. And taught a class on construction law, which generally had not been previously recognized as a separate course for a law school. So between the early 60s and 1970, he put together material for a book on construction law, which is one of the the leading books for that subject. After I had been a lawyer, I became a lawyer in 1985, and I had worked in a variety of areas, I became uh, interested in writing. And my father put me in touch with the publisher, one of the publishers he was dealing with. And so I began doing some writing of supplements, annual supplements for books on construction law, and then was able to convince that publisher to let me do the book in 1993 um, on avoiding or minimizing construction litigation, which was a book designed to be for a non-lawyer audience on some of the basics about how the law interacts with construction. And then uh, when my father uh, sort of stepped back some from doing the book on AIA documents, I took that over, and I've been doing that now for probably about 18 years. Is that right? AIA documents. So when when you were reviewing them, did you think, oh, you know what, this is for me? Uh, or how did it strike you as that? I want to I work in this, uh, this space. Well, it, it's interesting because in the last 15 years or so, I have attended AIA meetings where they have people showcasing a project or describing what they were trying to achieve in using architecture to uh, create and illuminate space. And it's been a very eye-opening experience for me because generally I wasn't aware of that. I live in a house where we've hardly ever done any modifications to the house. We just bought the house. But it is, is very interesting and exciting to me to hear architects describe what they're trying to do. Yeah, what are some of the challenges? Oh, I'm sure there. I'm going to assume there's many challenges, but what are um, some of the general uh, questions that an architect may ask you that uh, kind of can ease their concerns or or thoughts? Uh, Well, one of the things that, and I think you and I talked about this earlier, one of the things that comes up frequently is 
the relationship between the architect and the owner and the contractor and how those relationships get managed. And it's been fairly consistent that I see that there's a fair amount of anxiety on the part of the owner to not have the architect and the contractor communicate directly because they think somehow they're going to get outnumbered two to one and cheated. Okay. And so I think that communication is an important issue. And uh, I've even attended some of the architecture meetings where, um, in addition to building information modeling, which we can explain what that is if your viewers or listeners are not familiar with that, uh, computer-based uh, modeling for design, mm-hmm. um, and where they actually have the major trades and parties participating in the construction all physically be in the same space during the course of a project to try and cut down on communication problems. That's great. So you put them all together prior to uh, engagement or prior to agreement? Well, I think during the project, as the project's going on, because, you know, as um, requests for information come in or change orders come in and things have to get dealt with and modified along the way, that if everybody's communicating and recognizing, number one, how um, changes may affect the cost of a project, and number two, how changes may affect the schedule, that people can be more understanding what's going on and not have surprises. Okay. So that sounds like if you were brought in early uh, to the project or um, a renovation, that a lot of potential uh, issues emotionally and uh, unfortunately legal would be eliminated, if not minimized. Is that correct? Yeah. I, uh, I had a piece of litigation that I worked on involving the city of Milpita City Hall, and Turner Construction was the um, construction manager for the project. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of delays and a lot of cost overruns. And at one point, the Turner representative was asked what what caused a lot of the problems on the project. And he says, well, I'll give you just one small example. One day, the mayor walks in holding a piece of nautical railing. And he says, I want this everywhere in the building. <laughs> And that was nowhere in the drawings or nowhere in the plans, and that certainly affected the schedule and the cost. And he said that was just one example of what happened over and over on the project. Did he get the railing? I'm not sure. I haven't <laughs> been in the building. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm wondering, curious as to what prompts pr- prompted him to, to, to request that. Now, that being said, uh, you, you mentioned those are commercial projects. Are some of the – can you name any, some of the other commercial projects that you've you, – companies you've worked with that uh, you you think you've actually helped minimize their prospective uh, litigation or damages? Well, I think that in some ways the practice of architecture is like the practice of law in that if you're in a small firm, sometimes you get small projects to work on. And if you're in a big firm, you get big projects to work Mm -hmm. on. But what often happens on a construction project is when troubles start arising, when the trust breaks down between the owner and the general contractor or the designer, that um, having a, a less biased person or somebody who doesn't have a stake in what goes on help to participate to um, mediate or work on getting disputes resolved, that it can reduce the cost of a project or reduce the likelihood that people end up in a lawsuit. Yeah. You mentioned the, the word trust there. Um, I, it would seem that that's, that's vital. But how do you facilitate trust if it's, it, it's, a, it's not just a feeling where it's actually you know, a, a, a working relationship? How, do you, how would you help uh, establish that? I think that people need to believe that they have a common goal. 
Okay. And, you know, so when a dispute comes up and like in a mediation where people hire a third-party neutral to try and help resolve a dispute, what the mediator often tries to do is to focus on what common ground people have and what common interests they have. And generally what that is is that they want to end the dispute, that they're not usually happy about paying legal fees or diverting productive time away from new projects and being involved in a lawsuit. So they're trying to focus on why they have a common interest. And they may disagree about exactly how to solve that problem, but focusing on common interests. And I think that at the beginning or in the middle of a project, everybody would really like to have the project be successful, get completed on time and within budget. Yeah. So how would you um, – how do you minimize the egos involved when a project is so large and uh, well, the people involved want to put their stamp on the project or they want their their uh, more of their say onto it? How do you – how do you kind of – diffuse egos in addition to, you know, helping to increase the trust. I did some seminars through an educational group with an attorney from Sacramento who, this was probably about 10 years ago, and he said that, um, and I haven't read the book and I should really look it up, Toyota has put out some sort of a book which talks about instead of blaming people or assigning fault, that you try and go forward and figure out solutions. Nice. To try and have that be the emphasis. And at this particular seminar that I think we did in Oakland, the uh, lawyer said he suggests to his owner clients that they give the design professionals immunity from liability for design error. Hmm. And in the room we were in, there was somebody who had previously been identified as a design professional, and they said to him, how would you behave differently if you knew that you couldn't be sued for design error? And awesome. he said, you know, it's so far from reality, I can't even conceptualize it. Yeah. So I think the thing is that as a project is going on, a lot of what participants in construction big projects are taught is a lot of time and energy is devoted to documenting uh, what they've done so that they can't be blamed later on. Oh. Do you have any clients that actually seek you out prior to even uh, – in- Thinking about a project, who say, you know what, we want to have you in there early so that you can that you can bring everyone together before we ever prospectively get into litigation. Almost assuming that they will be in litigation. So, that how do they work backwards, so to speak? Well, I think more often what happens is somebody might come to me with a contract, and they okay. say, okay, this is a proposed contract. How is this contract going to help me or hurt me as we go down the road? And so. What I try and do is, for example, somebody came on a, on a high-end residential project and there was no provision for retention, there was no liquidated damages, there was a whole variety of things that could help protect an owner which were not there. And so I said to the owner, I said, well, what protections are there for you as part of this relationship? And he said, well, my wife and I will be looking over the contractor's shoulder. Oh. And I said, well, do you or your wife have any training or understanding of, our, of construction? And they said, no. So I said, well, that doesn't sound like great protection to me, and I would suggest that you make some changes to the contract language to try and build in some protection for you. So I think of the construction contract as a roadmap to try and regulate and provide a framework for dealing with issues as issues come up. Now, you mentioned something that I think it's relevant. is It's, it's not uncommon for for owners uh, uh, to hire an architect and then kind of tell them what to do. And um, I always find that uh, kind of funny. Uh, I, I, it'd be like hiring you as an attorney and then saying, okay, here's what I want you to do. Um, 
how, how would you, you address that or, or minimize that sort of? Uh... Well, I, I think the problem sometimes is that um, a client might ask me if I think something is a problem. And I say, well, mostly when people come to me, there already is a problem. And so <laughs> my viewpoint is skewed to be more likely to believe that this will actually become a real problem. But it's not an uncommon for, a, say, a contractor to come to me and say, he's basically done business on a handshake for 40 years and never had a problem. And I say, well, then you're doing something very right if you're managing to do that. But unfortunately, when an owner runs out of money, when an owner feels like they're being cheated by the contractor or that the markups are too big or that the project isn't getting done on time, they get pretty upset and pretty worried and may take steps which become destructive in the relationship. Uh, there's so much uh, just in, in studying what we, you and I are going to talk about today. There's so much I'm seeing, just so much law within the construction law. How do you keep up to date with, with all the changes and adjustments? Well, one of the things is that um, the book that I do on the AIA documents, uh, I read cases that I provide an annual supplement for that book. So I read cases that um, go into the book, and so I see that as part of it. I also, from a variety of sources, read things to try and keep up on what's going on. Um, the uh, you know one one example is that the uh, the AIA documents had a period of time where they uh, dictated that the project architect would always be the first dispute resolver, so that if a claim was going to be made by an owner the architect would be the first one to look at that or by the contractor. And for many years, there was there was resistance because they would say the architect who had a hand in design of the project is going to be protecting themselves and can't be a truly neutral person. Mm -hmm. So in the 2007 version of the AIA documents, they put in a clause saying that instead of calling that the project architect, it would be what they called the IDM or the initial decision maker. And the parties could agree to choose somebody other than the project architect to fulfill that original role, or they could use the project architect. But I think that the question of whether people are protecting their own self-interest or trying to work for the good of the project does rely on some of the trust or some of the uh, belief in the goodness of people rather than believing that everybody's just selfish and out for themselves. Yes. How... Uh... How does instinct for you, just through your experience over the years, play? Do you have you ever, you met with people that you think you know? I kind of think he or she is going to be going this way during this project, and you try to head it off before they kind of get themselves in trouble. Do you well, ever see that? Well, yeah. the kinds of things that are usually kind of warning signals for me is if the um, if the person who comes to see me seems very caught up in the right wrongness of the situation. The right wrongness of the yeah. situation? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> You're listening to The Modern Architect, KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. Siwa International USA is a Hindu faith-based nonprofit organization with charitable projects across the United States, as well as in India, Nepal, and many other countries worldwide. Siwa's focus is on helping in the event of natural disasters such as the Nepal earthquake, also providing support for refugee welfare, education, and healthcare, in addition to promoting volunteerism. For more information, or if you'd like to donate, please visit siwausa.org. That's S-E-W-A-U-S-A dot O-R-G. And now back to The Modern Architect. We're talking today with Jonathan Sweet, a construction litigation attorney 
you can see more information on his website at www.jonathansweetlaw.com. That's www.jonathansweetlaw.com. Jonathan, we were talking about your instincts before, prior to, if you can gauge that um, and, and uh, kind of head that, any prospective problems or challenges off before, before they arise. And you were saying how, how you kind of do that based on your experience. Yeah, I, I, what I'm hoping is that my client views the resol- resolving of whatever dispute they're faced with in a forward-looking manner rather than in a backward-looking manner. And what I mean by that is when somebody comes to me, some of what's going on is that they feel foolish for having gotten into a bad situation. Either they entered into an arrangement where everything's not in writing or they overpaid a contractor and the project is in trouble or whatever problems may come up and and that they feel that they, they got into a bad situation and they feel foolish about that. But now that they become invested in putting future resources toward writing that wrong that they view, and so I try and direct them toward viewing the problem as forward-looking and when they're sitting in my office that it's a zero point and we're trying not to... Uh, focus on mistakes mm-hmm. they might have made mm-hmm. and instead figure out constructive solutions. Yeah. You, uh, you know the person. I noticed that in, in uh, reading some of the uh, the documents you and I have shared is that that seemed to precede a lot of even the, litiga- the, the, the possible legal ramifications is know the person that you are working with. How do you measure that? Um, well, some of it comes down about, you know, what I tell people is whether it's a person they're going to sign a contract with, whether it's a person they're going to go into partnership with or work with, to try and figure out if they have common ways of looking at the world and at, and at business. And commonly what I see in a business, say you have two partners, one of them is more like a bean counter numbers person, mm-hmm. and the other is a big picture salesman type of person. Okay. And so they're trying to use both of those skills to make a business successful. But in many ways, it's because there's such differing viewpoints, it causes trouble. For example, the big picture person may say, well, we need to spend money on marketing to make money. Okay. And the smaller person, the, the more penny-pinching person, may say, you know, we got to make sure all those dollars we spend on marketing give us a return. And so that it's common that people that, with those differing viewpoints may come to a point where they have a hard time working together. And unwinding a project or unwinding a business is awkward and expensive and difficult. Nice. Yeah, you say, speaking of unwinding a business or uh, uh, trying to clean it up after, you've got a great piece I know on your website called "A Sweet Ten Steps to Profitable Design Professional Practice." How how did this come about, and what what uh, inspired you to put it together? Well, some of it was I had given talks to contractors and to architects and others about things, I sort of felt maybe I was kind of getting into the uh, Alcoholics Anonymous thing with having (laughs) steps. But, um, you know, basically, um, I tried to think of what I thought were some of the 10 important steps. And for lack of any better way to do it, since this is radio and nobody else can see what we're looking at, I'll read those briefly. Sure, please. So the steps include, number one, choosing carefully who you work with. Number two, setting up and operating properly. Number three, separating your assets. Number four, getting the right insurance. Number five, understanding your contracts. Number six, using mechanics lien and design professional law lien law. 
use the legal system carefully, number seven. Number eight, seek attorney help when needed. Number nine, understand the bankruptcy uh, process. And number 10, stop paying for past mistakes. Wow, that's 10, but those 10 are loaded. Uh, Say with number one, we'll go back to number one. Choose carefully who you work with. How would you recommend or or suggest uh, two people or two entities who are entering into a negotiation or a a a project, how would you suggest they measure that amongst themselves? Well, one of the things I tell people is, okay, California has a database for litigation for court cases. And one of the things I tell people is to look in the court database to see if somebody you're going to work with has previously been in lawsuits. Now, all by itself is not necessarily an absolute no that just because of that. But I had a lawyer in San Francisco refer somebody to me and I looked the person up that they were getting rid of as a client, and he'd been in 40 lawsuits. Oh, my. And and I, I called the lawyer who referred it to me, and I said, you know, this guy's kind of bad news here. And he says, well, we knew he'd been in some lawsuits. I said, no, 40 isn't some. 40 is a lot. <laughs> I said, and a few of them are for legal malpractice against former attorneys. So this is definitely somebody I would stay away from. I mean, I usually ask people, I tell people to look at the websites of people they're considering working with. Mm-hmm to, you know, these days they're the LinkedIn information and other social media information, checking referrals, asking for other customers or people they've worked with. All of those are things that give some indication of whether somebody is a person that you can work with. And unfortunately, sometimes it's very random, like it's your cousin or it's somebody that you went to school with or some other happenstance which ends you up with that person. Yeah, the second part. The second part is that set up and operate properly. Uh, I don't know if you've ever, if there's statistics out there that show how many people enter into business arrangements that don't set up properly. How would you describe setting it up and operating properly? Well, for example, if you're wanting to start a business and you have an idea to, um, and this is even separate from construction, just any kind of a business, is to determine whether you want to incorporate. And I explain to people some of the pros and cons of incorporating. But the basic best advantage of being incorporated is to limit the liability that you may incur in operating that business to the assets of the business. So the, the, the a starting point I ask somebody if we're talking about whether they should incorporate is whether they have personal assets that they want to protect. If they don't have personal assets, the cost and trouble of setting up a corporation may not be warranted. Unfortunately, California now has what they call LLCs or limited liability companies, which somehow sound better than a regular corporation because it has the word limited liability about it. But what all it really is is it's a form of business which costs the same. You still pay the same $800 franchise tax board fee, but you um, some of the steps to operate the business are simpler so that it's a recognition by the state that sometimes small businesses might set up but then not follow the steps and lose the protection of the corporate entity because they didn't issue stock, they didn't keep meeting minutes, they didn't do some of the other steps that a corporation is supposed to do. The other thing is basically just making sure you don't pay your personal debts out of your business bank account. Um, You segregate and treat those assets as separate as well. And I'm going to jump down here to number five uh, is the understanding your contracts. Uh, How many... I don't know how many people actually think that they know what their contracts are when they draw them up amongst themselves, but uh, would you encourage them seeking uh, legal 
counsel prior to even forming a business relationship? Well, yeah. I mean, it, whether, whatever the contract might be, people come to me with a contract and given what their place is in the, in the contractual relationship, I'll look at the language. You know, a very simple example is a lot of contracts that almost any business might sign say that um, the law of some remote place will control. So, okay. for example, say the parent company of the other one is located in, in Massachusetts. <clears throat> the contract, even though the people are all dealing in California, it says that Massachusetts law will apply and that that's where you would have to go with a lawsuit. And so I tell people that's a bad idea. You don't want to have to go far away and deal with some remote uh, forum's law in order to deal with a dispute. Um, indemnity clauses are a very complex area. Trying to understand an indemnity clause. Anybody who's read an indemnity clause, it seems like the lawyer who wrote it had never heard of a period. <laughs> and there are all those commas and semicolons. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so you have to try and really figure it out. And there are a variety of ways that an indemnity clause can be worse or better. Um, I had one. I remember one example. I think it was. It might even have been a Yerba Buena project in San Francisco where. The contract said that each subcontractor would be jointly and severally liable for delay. Oh, my. How? And so my client said, what does that mean? I said, that means that if you're 1% responsible for delay, the owner can get 100% of the cost of delay from you, and you have to chase after all the other 99% to get reimbursed. So you really don't want that. But the term joint and several doesn't mean anything to the average person. Yeah. That you have under... under, uh Use the legal system carefully, and this is in the uh, the introduction there. You, how, how, what do you mean by use the legal system carefully, and how would they know – how would a layperson know how to do it carefully? Well, I think you have to have a, a recognition, number one, that it's very expensive and that it's inefficient and not good at resolving problems. And so if it's a uh, – sometimes people who have had a, both a personal and a business relationship um, and they think they're going to use a lawsuit – Sometimes it's uh, – I remember somebody came to me once with something involving a few thousand dollars and he said he didn't want to spend any more than $500 in legal fees. And I said, well, then you probably shouldn't be talking to me because I can't do that for you. Yeah. A lot of lawyers say if a dispute is less than about $100,000, it's hard to make the legal system be cost effective to resolve that kind of a dispute. Less than 100000 Yeah. And that's in 2016? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the the other a major part of contracts is under California law, unless there is an attorney's fees clause, the attorney's fees that the uh, person who wins the lawsuit are not recoverable as damages unless there's a clause so stating in the contract. So you don't automatically get attorney's fees as part of your cost. So if you have to spend $100,000 to fight about $10,000, you're not going to be coming out ahead when it's all over. Yeah. Now, also here, uh, I'm going to jump down just to... Um uh, number 10 is stop paying for past mistakes. How, what are past mistakes? Are they financial, uh, personal? Well, here's, um, here's, a, here's a simple example. So some people came to me about a landscape contracting project that went bad. And so they think maybe they're owed about $50,000 because of overcharges or delays. So I said, okay, you could use an indirect alternative, which is to sue the contractor and hope that you're going to win the case and that you're going to be able to collect the judgment. Or you could take that $50,000 and finish the job properly and move on. And that in many ways, I think that using the money directly to solve the problem is a more efficient way of doing it. And even though it doesn't provide sort of the retribution or the revenge motive that people sometimes have, 
that it might be the more effective way to solve the problem they have, which is to get their project done. Yeah, I mean, going back again, it looks like you full circled this. Is uh, from number one, which is choose your care- choose carefully who you work with, and now we're going to the summary. It looks like as many construction disputes are created um, by the person choosing the wrong party to work with. So we went full circle with all this, and we you talked briefly uh, uh, about how you do that and how you can get a gauge of who you're entering a relationship with and how you can potentially mitigate any pr- problems. Um, are you, do you work with uh, architects or engineers and those in the construction company that like is every time they enter into an agreement that you, you go you go ahead of them or or at least with them? Do you have any arrangements like yeah, that? Yeah, I mean the the kinds of things that I've seen from architect clients that tend to come up are um, the definition of basic services versus additional services, um, whether somebody's working on an hourly basis. Um, and how they're going to get what their reimbursables are. Um, a lot of times the architect might want to put a liability limitation clause in their contract and the both sort of the practical issues and the legal ramifications of having a liability limitation clause. And, um, and then, you know, changes in scope. Those are the kinds of things that tend to come up in design contracts. Yeah. Now, I'm looking here, and this happens, uh, unfortunately, too often, is what the purpose of a mechanic mechanics lean what how how does that uh, um, you describe a bit about that or what is the the purpose of it to folks who may not be familiar with it okay if you have somebody working on your property or who um, um, yeah why don't is now a good time for us to take a quick break oh go ahead okay. continue please um, if somebody is uh, working on your property they either provide labor or materials they have under California law it's actually in the California Constitution the right to place what is called a mechanics lien against your property. That's a fairly simple form that they record with the county recorder's office. And once it's recorded, it has a 90-day life. So if they don't do anything about it within 90 days, it expires, but it still shows up in the chain of title. It's basically, it has to do historically with the recognition that construction laborers might not have had the same access to the court system as wealthier people, and so it gave them that little extra right. Normally, if you have a claim against somebody that is a money claim, you have to go through the process of uh, bringing a lawsuit, getting a judgment before you can do anything to affect the other person's access or use of their assets. So a mechanics lien is sort of this extra right for uh, construction people, suppliers, subs, and design professionals. This is The Modern Architect on KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. Home first. Formerly EHC Life Builders, is a leading provider of services, shelter, and housing for homeless men, women, and children in Santa Clara County. On any given night, more than 6,500 people in the county are homeless. Home First helps these people find and keep stable, long-term shelter, and transitional housing. The organization also maintains the largest outreach team that regularly visits people in the streets. If you would like to help, visit www.homefirstscc.org or call 408-539-2100 that's 408-539-2100 and now back to the modern architect our guest today is jonathan sweet attorney at law located in san jose california you can learn more 
online at www.jonathansweetlaw.com. That's www.jonathansweetlaw.com. Jonathan, what's the impact of a mechanics lien? Well, basically what happens is once the lien is recorded, the, uh, the claimant has 90 days to file a lawsuit on the lien, which is also sometimes called foreclosing the lien, but it's not like a uh, judicial foreclosure or a real estate ordinary foreclosure. So if somebody, if, if an owner comes to me and says, I have this problem with a contractor, he recorded a lien against my property, what do I do? One of the first questions I might ask is, do you plan to sell or refinance the property in the next 90 days? Because if so, the, the recording of the lien can cause a cloud on the title, which may present a problem for them. If they don't, it really doesn't have that much impact. So it often, you know, a, a contractor who doesn't get paid or a supplier who doesn't get paid, they might have the software to generate the form themselves. But to take further steps, they're probably going to have to go to a lawyer to take those steps. So it it, it sounds bad, but it's not as bad as it sounds. Okay. What steps um, should, uh, should someone take before starting a construction project and uh, how can they avoid liens altogether? Well, actually, I don't think California law would recognize the validity of a clause that attempted to uh, say you can never record a lien against my property. I think the the constitutional provision that gives the right to the lien, I think some states may recognize that or allow that. California, I think, generally does not. So um, – and one of the things, though, is that certain states um, have a different process for being able to validly claim a lien. California requires before you serve a lien or record a lien that you serve what's called a preliminary notice or a 20-day notice. Okay. Somebody who is not in contractual relationship with the owner is required to send that notice and they're very strict requirements. It has to be sent by certified mail and within a certain time frame, within 20 days of beginning work on the project. So basically the steps that you would take would be the ordinary steps you would take about being careful not to uh, have a problem if you can. But once the problem has come to light, um, the lien may be part of the process. Yeah, you know what else? I think this is relevant for suppliers is can a material supplier um, who does not deliver to your property even make a claim um, even though they're a supplier? No. It, that okay. One of the essential elements is that they deliver to the site. Okay. So they, they deliver to the site. What type of cases have you dealt with uh, in, in liens and is that a kind of a daily or weekly call you get against uh, someone calling you to help them with because they didn't do what they could have done at the beginning? It's pretty It's pretty regular. Okay. I mean, I would probably say at least a few times a week. Um, one of the other important requirements is that the lien has to be recorded in the correct county. And I had a, a, a medical group that came to me about a, a lien, which um, the property was right between East Palo Alto and Palo Alto, where there's a county line. And they had recorded the lien in the wrong county. And so when the supplier or the subcontractor was trying to get paid and they were claiming the lien, um, the doctor's group, I told them that the lien was not valid because it was recorded in the wrong county. And they said, well, we still want to pay the guy. And so I said, okay. So we were negotiating and the uh, it was a large uh, uh, specialty trade contractor and they kept pushing for more money. And I said, you know, I got to tell you, you don't have any legal right at all. Oh. And it's really through the goodness of their hearts that the doctors here want to pay you. So I wouldn't push it if I were you. Yeah. How do you get this information, this knowledge to um, the marketplace? Uh, do you have seminars, webinars? Do you part of organizations that you know invite members to, to hear 
and ask questions of, of, of how they could limit their uh, potential legal damages or da legal issues? Well, they, they can certainly buy one of my books. The more okay. expensive book is, is <laughs> over $500. Um, the other one on the secondary market is probably available. I think what the uh, publisher says when you go to the web page for the book says print on demand. So I guess they don't have a ton of them in the warehouse. <laughs> okay. But I think they're available in the secondary market. Certainly people can call me. Um, I've done seminars through Lowerman Educational Services. I've done seminars through the um, Santa Clara Valley AIA chapter. Um, and uh, I think there's a product specifier group that I've done work with, basically trying to you know, give some basic information about some of these issues and rules so that they have some understanding. Yeah. What, what's the response been when you have presented it to them? You know, what, what do they say after they hear you and kind of do a do they is it kind of a Q&A as well? Yeah. Sometimes okay. they have a live problem, a particular issue that's a problem for them. Sometimes they're complaining that, uh, for example, if a lot of the times when I talk about alternative dispute resolution, which means usually mediation these days, which is where you have a neutral third party work with the two sides to try and broker a settlement, that they say that they felt that the merits of the dispute were not addressed in the mediation. And I try to explain to them that, you know, the mediation process is a more practically based process, which is designed to focus on what are the costs and downsides of going forward with a lawsuit versus making a compromise arrangement. And I had one client who, after a number of years working with him on litigation, he said, you know, I'm really tired of settling all the time. He said, Why I want you to go to court and do your stuff. And I said, well, you know, actually going to court and being in a courtroom is some of the more fun thing that I do. I said, but I don't think it's in your interest. I think it's too expensive. And the, um, the gamble that it represents is probably not worth it for you. And that it's better. And there's a reason why most people compromise is because they recognize that. One mediator I used said, well, you know, in the one hand or the one side, you have a lottery ticket and on the other side, you have a pot of money. And in the particular case where this mediator used the analogy, I said, well, oh, interesting. given that the dollar amount that's being offered is so small, I wouldn't call it a pot of money. I'd call it less. <laughs> but I, I understand that the lottery ticket is the trial in this analogy. And she said yes. Yes. In mediation, is there such thing as a pre-mediation? What I mean by that is is if you can almost make a an assumption that there may be a problem at some point, not because you're trying to make any problems or, or cause them, but um, uh, something, a checklist, I guess, of, of potential problems that could come arise beforehand, like bringing you in at the beginning as a four Well, person. see, here's a good example. I had an architect who came to see me some time ago who was doing work for a very wealthy property owner. And at some point, the architect had foolishly agreed that he wasn't going to charge any more money, even though the design work was continuing. Oh, my. And so he said, literally, if I have to keep working for free, I'm going to have to close my doors. And so I said, well, have you tried communicating that problem to the owner? And he said, well, the owner responded by saying, that's not his problem, that's my problem. I said, well, but let's take this to its logical extension. If you have to close your doors and you can no longer provide him with services, he's going to have to go out on the open market and hire somebody else. So it is his problem. So I think that having people recognize that it's a mutual problem. And the other thing is that if parties, you know, the, the universe of players in construction is relatively small. And that if people get into a lawsuit, it generally kills the idea that they're ever going to work together again. And so if you can negotiate a solution or have some sort of a, 
compromise that people agree to, the likelihood that they can continue to work together in the future is greater. Have you seen or experienced examples where uh, there was litigation between two parties and they've actually worked together again? Yeah, I think it does happen. I think, you know, some of the major companies recognize that litigation may be just some somewhat part of the cost of business. The other thing is that one of the things I try to make clear to clients is that if there's somebody like, for example, a party may, an owner may come to me and say they have a problem with the construction, and um, but they don't want to sue their architect because they like their architect. And I go, well, even if you don't bring the architect into the lawsuit, the contractor will. So the architect will end up in the lawsuit eventually. In fact, I had one large project, I think it was in Berkeley, I think it was a Vista College project, and the architect had not yet been sued. And when I was calling the uh, attorney for the architect about documents, he says, I don't understand why we haven't been sued yet. <laughs> and I said, well, it wouldn't be us that would sue you. It would be the owner. The owner is the one who hired you. But I said, maybe that's down the road after they get your documents. Oh. So the, uh, go back to the, the mediation. Do you do many cases of mediation? Or, well, there, or? There's, there's two ways that mediation comes up. It can okay. come up at any time regarding any problem where the parties hire the neutral one of the things I make clear to people is if they call me and it sounds like uh, they want help, one of the first things I try and distinguish is if they're consulting me as an attorney, as their advocate and their counselor, or as a possible mediator. Because if I'm going to be the mediator, I can't know the facts or be given stuff as though it's a confidential attorney-client communication. Mm -hmm. So I try and distinguish, and occasionally they start with giving me a problem and asking for advice, and then they say, well, can you be the mediator? And I say, no, that's not suitable because that would be a conflict of interest. I can help you find a mediator, but yeah, I mean, and statistically mediation is what tends to, to resolve disputes. The other way it comes up is as part of the lawsuit itself. Once a lawsuit is filed, there's generally a requirement that you go to alternative dispute resolution before the court system will give you a courtroom for a trial. Yeah. Now, I, I see here also you have construction disputes are technically and legally complex. Are they any more so or less so than you know some other uh, um, industries? Or is it because there's so many moving parts and there's such a time timeline of completion that that kind of accelerates potential aggravation? I think the interdependence of all the parties. Um, I was working on a case involving problems with some concrete um, uh, supports for a freeway overpass. And I was reading through one of the reports, and it said that there were anomalies in the gamma-gamma logs. Okay. So I asked somebody to explain what that means. He says, bad. It's bad. <laughs> I said, well, I could sort of tell that, but what does it really mean? He goes, well, it means there are pockets of air or water that are in the concrete that are creating structural instability. So, yeah, I think that, you know, just the fact that somebody may have a kind of a basic or practical understanding, there are a lot of technical details that are important about how something gets done or whether it can be um, addressed by some other means. I had a small case go to trial in Santa Cruz County where there were um, granite countertops which didn't get paid for. And so the judge said, well, doesn't this granite countertop that the customer didn't buy, doesn't it have a market value? Can't they, like, cut it up and make it into, like, coffee cup trivets? <laughs> and the maker of the countertop said, no, basically it's worthless to anybody else. It's custom fit for a specific application and it really has no market value. No, I mean, I think that, you know, if you're talking about the high-tech industry or, um, you know, pharmaceutical companies or other things, certainly there are a lot of technical details involved there. But mm -hmm. really what it is is that if you're actually going to try a case, 
the lawyer's job is to educate the um, jury and the judge about things that may be pretty technical. And this is outside the construction arena, but when I was first working in this field, there was an engine for a ship that they said had been derated. And so they asked the expert, they said, what does that mean that the engine's been derated? And he goes, well, let me give you a simple analogy. It's as if you bought a car and they told you that the car is perfectly fine. It just can't go more than 40 miles an hour. Oh, okay. He said that's what derating the engine means, that it's not up to the specifications that were stated and won't do what it's supposed to do. Yeah. So does it uh, – do your clients ask you, can you help them – as I said, this is several times now, but it just seems like what could you do to – minimize any potential damage or, or, or issues at the beginning. Uh, uh, they have you, do they hire you, so to speak, uh, to help them before they even get into these projects and say, hey, we, we're expecting to go um, do this project here, do that project here. Jonathan, can you help us make this smooth at the beginning? Yeah, some of it has to do with contract drafting. Some of it has to do with um, you know, I had a homeowners association that contacted me about doing some work with a contractor. And I looked up in the database, and they'd been in four or five lawsuits. And so I went back to the Homeowners Association, and I said, they've been in some lawsuits. You might think about whether or not you want to work with them. And they said, well, we still want to do it anyway. We think they're okay. And I said, that's fine. But So some of it has to do with the contract language. Some of it has to do with the financial stability of the company. Some of it may have to do with um, the kind of insurance that the other party has. I, I had a homeowner who was doing an expensive remodel in San Francisco, asked me to review the design agreement, and I looked at it, and there was no reference to having any errors and omissions insurance. And so I said to the client, I said, you should consider whether you want to work with somebody that doesn't have insurance. This is The Modern Architect, KZSU 90.1 FM, Stanford. The Loop is a radio show featuring electronic music, ranging from house to techno to downtempo and everything that's good in the underground. Each week, the show features releases, exclusive mixes, top picks, interviews, and live guest DJs from around the world. That's The Loop with Drew Deep starting at 11 a.m. this Monday morning. We're talking today with construction law attorney Jonathan Sweet, located in San Jose, California. Jonathan, what I, I notice here the fiduciary duties of partners, which uh, generally... Actually, general partners generally owe each other a fiduciary duty. How do they each quantify that? Well, usually the way that revolves is around what's called self-dealing. So, for example, let's say you have two architects who are in a partnership, and architect B takes on private clients and diverts the money that otherwise would have gone to the partnership and does it himself. And the same thing can happen where you have stockholders in a corporation. They have the same fiduciary duty to each other not to self-deal. So basically it's the putting it's, – it's creating a higher standard than an arm's-length relationship. In other words, uh, sometimes when I talk with people who are in the insurance business about how they behave toward uh, insured clients, and they say, well, we're just in business like everybody else. We're just trying to make money. I said, no, you're the good hands people. You're the good neighbors. You're selling peace of mind to these people as though you're their buddy. I said, that doesn't sound like an arm's length relationship. But in some ways, the fiduciary obligation is a higher standard of care that you owe to somebody where you have that relationship. And so basically, it's recognizing that 
it's more than just an arm's length relationship. It's a higher standard. I I notice here a corporation exists as a legal person. Now, there's been this may get some emails in in here, but um, what does what does that mean? It's a corporation exists as a legal person, and how could someone kind of understand it objectively? Well, really, what for the purposes of talking about whether they whether a small business sets up as a corporation, it's that a recognition that the corporation has um, the corporation signs contracts. The corporation um, has assets. It has liabilities. And so, for example, if a contractor signs a contract but doesn't sign the contract as president of ABC Corporation, then it looks like they were acting as an individual rather than as the legal person represented by the corporation. So if I have a situation where I have somebody who's trying to claim money from somebody else and we think they have personal assets but that the corporation is a shell and doesn't really have money, One of the things I may look at is how did they sign the contract? Did they sign as a corporation? And where did the money go? Did the money go into the corporation or did it go somewhere else? I love this line, the piercing the corporate veil. It sounds like a a movie. What what does that mean exactly? Basically, it's, it's the other term that's often used is alter ego liability. But generally what it means is that if the person operating the business has not maintained the separateness and the validity of the corporate form that they can have personal liability. I had a client who had a debt against uh, a claim against a debtor who the debtor had gone into bankruptcy and the client says to me, I drive by his office every day and I see the Land Rover parked there. How come we can't get the Land Rover? <laughs> and I go, well, because that's personally owned. That's not a corporate yeah. asset. So, uh, you know, the, you can't take the Land Rover. But, yeah, it's it's basically that recognizing that under certain circumstances, and I think um, in the materials there, there are some of the steps that will a corporation may or, or that a court will look at as to whether or not the corporate form is valid. And among those are is whether the corporation is adequately capitalized, whether they filed followed proper corporation procedures, whether they've obtained adequate liability insurance, whether personal guarantees have been provided by the individual shareholders, whether the uh, corporation has held regular director and shareholder meetings, and whether contracts have been executed in the name of the business rather than as an individual. Those are some of the criteria that a court might look at to determine whether they will pierce the corporate veil or find alter ego liability. Okay. And some of the uh, – speaking of liability or potential liability um, in San Francisco, we have some issues obviously with with some of the buildings there. Are you at liberty to share what your insights are? Are you, are you talking about like the tower that's yes, sinking? Yes, yes. Well, California has a 10-year statute of repose for latent defects. It's a four-year statute for uh, patent or obvious defects. Um, the, the problem with uh, – the, the issue with addressing a problem like that has to do with what's the, the value of the dispute? What's the value of the claim? And the claims are probably huge. Um, you know, what often happens is there's inadequate money. I mean, this fire that happened in Oakland – you know, 36 deaths, you know, how is this owner of the building possibly going to have adequate assets or insurance to cover that? Yeah. How, how, would, how, would, they, how would they prospectively even deal with that? Yeah. I mean, they, they may file lawsuits against the, um, against the building owner, but the building owner, um, if the building owner is found uh, criminally liable or uh, reckless disregard that is to a high standard, then bankruptcy may not cancel out the debt. But it still means where is he ever going to have money? He probably will never have money. In, in that case, what what's done? 
Does the state take over? Does what what happens? No, basically, yeah. if you have a claim that you can't find somebody with assets or insurance to pay the claim, you the victim goes uncompensated. Basically, okay. I've heard the term judgment proof. Is that is there such a thing, or uh, where they can't be sued for? Damages? Is, well, there, yeah. the, there, there's the question of whether, as a practical matter, they have any money okay. or any assets from which to collect a judgment. And then there's the question of whether, you know, because what happens is in Cal- under California law, if you get a judgment against a debtor, it's, it's valid for 10 years and it can be renewed for additional 10-year periods. So somebody who has a claim against, say, a college student, the college student may say, I'm poor, I don't have any money. I don't care if you get a judgment against me, but maybe someday that college student will be a doctor or a lawyer or maybe even an architect and have some money. <laughs> so the, down the road, there may still be a point at which they can be not judgment-proof. Okay. So there is such a thing, such a thing as that. Now, it, back to the, the, the towers there, do you, ha, do you kind of foresee I – mean, I'm asking you kind of like a, a sportscaster. What do you, you see potentially happening in the case like that if you, if you can comment on it? Well, one of the things I think to recognize is that we've become conditioned as a society to believe that if a bad thing happens, somebody must have made a mistake. And I think that if the people who built the tower and did the engineering for the tower can establish that they didn't act below the standard of care and that it's unfortunate that the tower is sinking, but they can establish that they did everything that was uh, within the appropriate level of professionalism and standard of care for somebody in their business, then even though something bad is happening, they may still be able to be found not liable. Have you any examples of that or have you had well, clients that have had that situation? Yeah. Up? Yeah. I mean, uh, when I was first a lawyer, I was working on asbestos cases. And some of what uh, big asbestos companies would use as a defense was what they called the state-of-the-art defense which is, or the government specifications defense. They would say, look, the government told us to use asbestos and we didn't know it was dangerous and therefore we're not liable. Or nobody knew how dangerous asbestos was and therefore we can't be held to retroactively now be responsible now that we now have later science and information that tells us it is dangerous. Ah. Now, this is, this is going to be a little side from Lobber. Maybe there's a connection. Is You're also a fencer. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah is that how you say it? You're a fencer or – Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. How, how did you – when did you start? I started fencing when I was in high school. Um, they didn't have a competitive program. They had classes. Um, I went to uh, high school in Berkeley and they had a sub-school, what they called them. They were sort of like charter schools. There were special interest schools and the fencing was part of the School of the Arts. And there was a woman who was teaching the class. Her name was Jean Gregerson. She had gone to some summer program and learned a little bit about fencing. So I started in high school. I fenced for Berkeley when I was a a college student at Berkeley, and I've pretty much continued uh, since. And uh, so I've been fencing for about 40-some years. 40 years? Oh, my goodness. Now, how how does it relate to law? I'm seeing it. I'm asking you a loaded question. I can see how it relates to law, and in particular, your practice. And does it help it, benefit it? Well, the interesting thing about, and, and this gets a little complicated about fencing, but Two, sport, two parts of fencing have uh, where the director has to determine what's called right-of-way. So in other words, you might have actually hit the person, but if the director doesn't think you had established right-of-way, you may not get a touch. So a part of fencing and recognizing and not going crazy when you think you've gotten a bad call from a director is to recognize that um, there's this randomness where directors may call 
touches in a way that you don't agree with, but that you have to accept that. And by the same token, if you go to court with a judge and you put on your case, you may think your case looks like a pretty strong case, but the judge or the jury may not see it that way. And so I think that having some ability to distance yourself from your own position of feeling like you must be right is helpful as far as being a lawyer as well. Jonathan, it's been an honor and a privilege having you here today. Thank you very much for being on our show. Thank you. It's, uh, you know, it's hard to get lawyers to shut up. (laughs) You've been listening to The Modern Architect. I'm Tom Dioro. Our guest today has been Jonathan Sweet, a Martindale Hubble Directory AV-rated attorney. Jonathan has written two books on construction law, Sweet on Construction, Industry Contracts, Major AIA Documents, and Avoiding or Minimizing Construction Litigation. Jonathan regularly represents small and medium-sized businesses in contract review, drafting, civil litigation regarding business disputes, and other legal issues throughout California. For more information, go to www.jonathansweetlaw.com. That's www.j-o-n-a-t-h-a-n-sweet-s-w-e-e-t-law.com. Join us again next time when we welcome another outstanding architect, influencer, or civic leader committed to positive and sustainable cities, communities, and lives. The Modern Architect is recorded at Stanford University Studios in Palo Alto, California, and is a production of the KZSU Radio. The producer is McGregor Joyner. Recording engineer is Akshay Jaggi. Assistant engineer is Michael Longoria, and we're all assisted by Bryce Carter. The production manager is Akshay, and the executive producer and host of the Modern Architect radio show and podcast is Tom DiOro. Thank you for tuning in.